Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about Bach's two and three part inventions. The list of Bach's pedagogical works for keyboard is a substantial one. He composed teaching pieces with various levels of technical difficulty for his family members and several students. Included among these are the Clavier Buchlein for Wilhelm Friedemann, begun in 1720 and the source from which most of the two-part inventions derive, the Notenbuchlein for Anna Magdalena, and the Clavierbuchlein, also for Anna Magdalena. There are also miscellaneous little preludes for beginners, and then later the two- and three-part inventions in their final versions, and eventually more ambitious collections such as the French and English suites, the partitas, and the well-tempered clavier. But of all of these, and with the possible exception of some of the better-known works from the well-tempered clavier, it is, of course, the two- and three-part inventions, the latter also known as Sinfonia, that have made the most impact, even to the present, on young pianists around the world. And the inventions are, of course, pedagogical in two senses, as Bach clearly indicated. They teach keyboard technique, specifically how to play cleanly in two parts, with a cantabile or singing style, but also in regard to composition, to create and develop good motivic ideas. This last reference has led some to suggest that Bach was using them specifically as a model for keyboard players who extemporize, as so many did in the 18th century. But I think it's also safe to say that they were intended as models for more conventional composition as well. On to the inventions themselves. In short pieces such as these, and given Bach's general proclivities, it will come as no surprise that the composer is generally quite economical with the motives he employs to construct these pieces. I'm going to provide a sampling of the two-part inventions first, beginning with the first invention in C major, written in common time, with no tempo marking designated by Bach, although plenty of editors have been free with their advice as to tempo over the years. The invention starts with the right hand alone after a 16th note rest by presenting a subject, only a single bar long, with these components. A four-note ascending scale fragment starting on tonic, a pair of descending broken thirds, the second starting a step lower than the first and ending back on tonic, and then an ascending leap of a fifth. This really completes the subject, but we hear a possible fourth component the first time we hear the subject when the melody begins by tacking on another ascending leap of a perfect fourth, ending on the tonic an octave higher, which then dips down to the leading tone with a mordant, and then comes back up to the tonic C. But this only happens in the first two bars, and Bach never really develops this fourth idea as a separate entity. Here is a slowed-down, right-hand-only version of the first two bars. You will hear all of the components I mentioned, starting on the tonic in the first bar, and then a close variant of them in the second bar up a fifth. As in most of the inventions, this one employs imitation at the beginning of the piece. In this case, because the subject is so brief, the imitation comes in almost right away, in the left hand, after a 16th note rest on beat 3. It's an octave lower than the original subject, and that's also typical. 
By measure 3, the right hand has begun to spin out the first two ideas, the four-note ascending scale pattern and the falling thirds, but in inversion. The first four sixteenths descend to link up to an ascending broken thirds pattern. Combining these two ideas four times in a row, the right hand works its way down an octave and a half, breaking the pattern only to set up a tentative cadence on the dominant G major. Having done that, it immediately returns to the earlier ideas, especially the broken thirds, as it sets up a strong cadence in the key of G in measure 7. Meanwhile, the left hand, after engaging in imitation in the first two bars, moves to a flow of eighth notes which ascend in groups of four, but with the whole pattern descending sequentially as the right hand voice descends. It's rather like an augmentation of the first four note ascending scale fragment originally heard in the right hand, but since it's moving at a slower pace in the left hand, you might not immediately make the connection. Here is an actual performance up to measure seven and the emphatic cadence on G major. Having arrived securely in G major, the imitation now starts up again in the new key, but it's the left hand that leads the way this time. The right hand imitation is not an exact match for the left hand at the beginning of the piece, being altered somewhat to provide suitable consonances. But in general terms, we are simply replicating the opening subject, but in a new key and with the parts reversed. Chromatic alterations to the lines in both left and right hands soon nudge us toward other tonal centers, first C major, then D minor, and then finally and more convincingly, with both voices finally moving together in thirds and sixths, we approach A minor. Once securely locked into this new key, the right and left hands start to toss the opening motives from the subject back and forth, the scale fragment leading to the broken thirds which we again hear first in inversion, but then later in the original version. Eventually, we start heading back to C major, as the two voices continue their back and forth echoing, but our progress is sidetracked by a little flirtation with F major, just measures before the conclusion. But one way or another, references to the original motives never stop until the final cadence, where the tonic arrives in a full four-part triad. Here is the remainder of invention number one, beginning where the subject is switched to the left hand and imitated by the right.
It is by the standard of a number of box keyboard works we've looked at, a very simple piece, but it is tightly knit, and by the time it comes to the final cadence, you strongly get the impression that Bach has gotten quite a bit out of some rather simple motivic ideas. Invention number two in C minor in common time presents us with a somewhat longer first subject. Here it is in a simplified version. Although the rhythmic flow is a bit more homogeneous here, almost all sixteenth notes after an eighth note rest, the subject is a little more diverse in terms of its motivic components. It begins on the tonic with a lower neighbor tone figure, moves up the scale by step, and then drops a minor sixth, all in the first two beats. Beat three undulates within an implied F minor subdominant chord, then leaps up a minor sixth to the upper F before a five-note descending scale fragment delivers us to the leading tone, the raised seventh scale degree in the key. Then we again make an ascending leap, this time a diminished seventh, after which we hear a longer stepwise descent down the scale, which ends up hovering around the tonic before the phrase ends. So, as you could hear, there is more variety among the motivic components here compared to the first invention, but there are clearly some repeated ideas as well. The left hand enters in measure three with the imitation of the subject in the lower octave. But before I play it, let's take a look at the counter subject, the counterpoint in the right hand that continues on as the left hand comes in with its version of the subject. Clearly, we have some new ideas here in the counter subject. Most importantly, it's syncopated stop-start quality, lending some much-needed rhythmic variety to the mix, and which will play an important role later on. Here is a performance of both voices, ending in measure 5 with a soft and temporary cadence on E-flat, the relative major key following a trill in the left hand. As you could hear, the action by no means stops with the soft cadence on E-flat. At this point, the left hand began its octave lower version of the two-measure counter subject, while the right hand introduces a new idea against it. It's not a terribly distinctive new idea, but it does catch the ear somewhat with its offbeat beginning and tie into the next beat. And distinctive or not, it does have a role to play later, just a couple of measures later, and then again later on in the piece. Here it is again in a simplified example. Of course, it's designed to be compatible with the counter subject, now being played beneath it in the left hand. But it's perfectly well integrated on its own terms. The arpeggio figure on B3 
leading to the descending scale line on beat 4 in the first measure, is replicated down a step on beats 1 and 2 of the second measure. The idea then starts up again on beat 3 of the second measure, but is broken off for a pre-cadential mordant figure. This two-measure passage is then shifted down to the left hand, while the right hand comes up with a second new idea. This one is quite simple, but rather more distinctive, especially its across-the-beat ties and repeated upper neighbor figures in the first bar. I haven't accounted for every note in this invention, not even every motive as it proceeds, but we've isolated the most important, and it remains only to be heard how Bach puts them together as he moves first to E-flat major and later toward G minor and B-flat major before returning home to the original key of C minor. Here is the entire invention from beginning to end. We'll move on now to invention number four in D minor in 3-8 time. At first glance, the two-measure subject for this invention would seem to be unusually generic, an ascending scale in 16th notes going up in the first measure and down in the second. But it's what happens between those two scale passages that makes the subject quite distinctive and which opens it up to a myriad of developmental possibilities. And what happens between those scale lines is an unexpected descending leap of a diminished seventh, which then pops right back to the note from which it originated. The subject is imitated an octave lower in the left hand in measure three, while the right hand continues with a simple countersubject, consisting of triadic arpeggios in eighth notes, moving up the tonic chord, starting on the third of that chord, 
and the leading tone diminished chord, starting on the fifth. In measures four and five, the subject is back in the right hand, now an octave higher, while the left hand takes over a slightly altered version of the countersubject. We hear a soft cadence in measure seven, although the right hand continues nonstop from there with its sixteenth note flow. But we'll pause the action at that point for the purposes of my first excerpt. Before we continue on, a brief aside about harmony in the two-part inventions. So far in the first six measures plus, we've heard three alternations between tonic D minor chords and leading tone diminished chords on C sharp. Of course, we're just dealing with two parts here rather than with full three-part triads. So when I refer to chords, I'm really talking about the chords implied by the interaction between the parts. There's little mystery as to the identity of an implied harmony when one of the voices actually arpeggiates a triad, as we hear in the countersubject in measures three through six. That arpeggiation so clearly states that particular chord that the ear tends to interpret the sixteenth note line which falls against the chord as compatible with it, even if the line itself actually contains non-harmonic tones, even on strong beats, notes that don't really fit in with the chord. We'll see some examples of that in just a minute. Okay, back to invention number four. In measure seven, Bach starts to break away from the repetition of the subject, but he does so in a very subtle way. He employs the ascending scale pattern from the first measure of the subject, but alters the first pitch, starting the pattern a third higher, still a note within the implied tonic minor harmony, and then skipping down to the tonic note and proceeding up the scale as before from there. In other words, he goes from the original pattern to this slightly altered pattern. It doesn't seem like much of a change, but this new version, since it ends on a different note, allows him to break away from the repeated harmonic progression of the first six bars and head off in a new tonal direction, which will eventually turn out to be F major. He doesn't abandon the basic motivic ingredients of his subject in doing this. In fact, the altered ascending D minor scale line to which I just referred is followed up with an only slightly altered version of the second measure of the subject, the descending line. It begins on a different note and implies a different harmony, but its shape is very much comparable to the pattern heard originally in bar two. As you'll hear in a minute, Bach takes this slightly altered pair of measures and repeats them down a step, with the ultimate goal being his modulation to F major. You'll also notice that when this process starts, the nature of the left hand contributions changes somewhat. The left hand is no longer engaging in imitation and is not quoting the countersubject, but is for a while moving in slower moving eighth notes against the altered subject, sometimes by step and sometimes outlining triads. But after a few measures, this new altered version of the subject has switched down to the left hand, where it is repeated down a step. It then appears on different pitch levels as Bach moves toward the cadence on F major. Meanwhile, above the left hand, we hear some motivic fragmentation in the right hand. That is, the first three notes of the ascending scale line from the first measure are broken off and repeated immediately, creating an interesting cross-rhythm effect. Here's a performance excerpt 
starting from the beginning and extending through to measure 18, where the modulation to F major is completed. After arriving in F major, not quite halfway through the 52-measure invention, Bach continues to spin out many of the previous motives and a few new ones, most notably an extended trill on the dominant, first in the right hand and then later transferred down to the left. And some of the older ideas appear now in new guises. The entire first subject is presented in inversion and then repeated a step lower in that form. Meanwhile, we're heading to new keys, first A minor, where Bach continues to spin out earlier ideas and reintroduces the pedal trill effect, this time in the left hand. By the time we finally hear a definitive cadence in A minor, it appears that Bach has tired of the key, and we are instantly on the move again, first to F major, and then quickly to D minor, where the subject is reintroduced and imitated. Four measures before the end, we experience a rather deft, deceptive cadence right before the subject is heard for the last time in inversion, leading to the final cadence. We'll hear it from right after the modulation to F major to the final cadence. We'll turn now to invention number 8 in F major in 3-4 time, and as exuberant an example of two-part counterpoint as Bach ever composed. You could describe the opening bar of the two-measure subject as consisting of an ascending motive starting on the second half of the first beat, based on a triadic arpeggiation peaking on the upper tonic, followed in the second bar by a descending slash undulating scale line taking us back down again but you only have to listen to a few bars of the opening to hear how inadequate such descriptions can be. As you heard, the left-hand imitation comes in early in measure 2, overlapping with the subject and ascending forcefully as the second measure of the subject descends with equal force. While the left hand is finishing up the subject, the right hand launches a new version of the ascending triadic arpeggio motive, which the left hand will echo in the next measure, and then lapses into a simple sixteenth note figuration pattern consisting of ascending thirds followed by lower neighbor figures. That pattern will soon shift to the left hand while the right hand plays with it in sixths. Here it is again in a slowed down version starting in measure 4 with the left hand finishing up the initial imitation and the right hand beginning the new figuration pattern.
That simplified example, starting in measure 4 and extending through measure 8, reveals a couple of things. First of all, it shows the first actual change in harmony, which doesn't occur until measure 6, the third measure of my example. We're accustomed to a faster harmonic rhythm with Bach. Sitting on the tonic chord for five measures in a row is not unheard of, but neither is it typical. Second, as soon as Bach introduces the new chord, he uses it to begin a modulation to a new key, C major, the key of the dominant. In the process, he exploits slightly transformed versions of motives which we were introduced to in the opening measures. Once there is an emphatic cadence in the new key of C major, we get something of a reset in the new key, with the left hand stating the subject and the right hand chiming in with the imitation two octaves higher. Predictably, we're on the move tonally, touching briefly on other keys and introducing a few new repeated figuration patterns and new adaptations of old ones in the process. But mostly, we're on familiar ground as we speed to the final cadence, again ending with a final tonic chord in four parts. Here is the entire invention. We're going to take a somewhat briefer look at the invention number 6 in E major, in 3-8 time. There are a few interesting things about this invention. It's the only one of the two-part inventions composed in two related sections, each section given a repeat, like so many of the sweet movements we've looked at. It's also the most completely syncopated of any of the inventions. There are relatively few measures devoid of weak beat accents. In fact, the opening subject based initially on a descending scale with a lowered 7th scale degree inserted, starts on the upper E in the right hand and relies exclusively on offbeats for the first three measures, even as it begins to climb back up to the third of the scale. Here is a slowed down version of the first three measures, along with the left hand, which begins by moving up the E major scale on the beat, although when it reaches the upper octave, it begins a descent in 16th notes. In measure 4, we hear an important new idea in the right hand, as the melody continues to undulate up to the 5th scale degree before moving back down the scale again. Bach uses a combination of 16th notes alternating with 32nd note lower neighbor tones to accomplish this, and this particular rhythm takes on a life of its own later in the invention. Another interesting facet to this invention is its use of invertible or double counterpoint. This is far from being the only time we've seen this in one of Bach's works, but I'm not sure we've ever looked at a clearer example. 
It's obvious right away. The subject and its countersubject appear together right from the beginning. And then, after four measures, the two voices switch, and the right-hand subject goes to the left hand, and the left-hand countersubject goes to the right. Invertible counterpoint is by no means automatic. You can't normally just switch parts like this without any modifications in those parts and expect it will still work. For example, you might have the interval of a perfect fifth with a C in the bottom voice and a G in the top voice. That interval will sound somewhat hollow to most modern ears, but it is a consonance. But if you switch the two notes around, and the G is on the bottom and the C is on the top, then it becomes a perfect fourth, which is considered a dissonance at this point. Now, of course, Bach and every composer makes use of dissonances, even accented dissonances, even in exposed two-part writing such as the inventions. In fact, Bach probably takes more chances with dissonance in this context than most Baroque composers would, and succeeds because each contrapuntal line has such a strong sense of linear direction that passing dissonances add interest to the harmonic texture without really confusing it. Nevertheless, in 18th century counterpoint, there is an expectation that dissonances should be treated correctly, and simply switching lines, top to bottom and bottom to top, will often cause problems if the individual lines are not created specifically with this type of switching in mind. Here's the first section of the invention. We're going to turn now to the three-part inventions, which Bach designated eventually as Sinfonia. As in the 15 two-part inventions, there is a lot of variety here, in terms of technical focus, mood, and style, and even more, arguably, in terms of texture. We're going to start with the Sinfonia number no. 3 in D major in common time. The first subject is typically Bachian. It begins on the third scale degree after an eighth note rest with quick ascending stepwise movement high in the range, followed by a descending plunge to the lowered seventh scale degree, and then another descending step. This idea is then repeated twice more, each time a step lower. The second part of the three-measure subject balances the descending leaps by leaping up a seventh to a descending scale fragment. This idea is repeated once a fourth higher, and then followed by a series of sixteenth notes which begin by extending the previous descending scale fragment and then double back to end on the dominant note. Here's an example, slow down again, containing both parts of the subject along with the left-hand bass line and which ends with a tonicization of A major. On the last beat and a half of measure three, right after my example ended, the alto voice comes in, 
with imitation of fourth lower, while the left hand begins a series of undulating sixteenth notes, and the soprano line in the right hand introduces some slower moving suspensions, then links up to harmonize with the second part of the subject in the alto. Although it's almost lost in the series of soprano line sixteenth notes and alto suspensions that follow, the bass line imitates the subject in measure six, after a beat and a half, coming in a couple of octaves lower than the original subject. This finishes up by measure eight, after which we lapse for a while into undulating but gradually ascending patterns of sixteenth notes traded back and forth, and a new dotted rhythm idea. Soon the subject makes another entrance in the soprano against a sequentially expanded flow of sixteenth notes in the alto and suspensions in the bass line. After that plays out, along with some more motivic exchanges between the voices, the action pauses very briefly for an emphatic cadence on F-sharp minor. We'll hear an actual performance to that point. As you could hear right at the tail end of my excerpt, the initial motive of the subject pops up immediately after the cadence on F-sharp minor, and is quickly echoed in the alto line and bass line. It's this initial motive, heard in various voices, that controls the action for the next several measures, sometimes extended to its sequential repetitions, against familiar sixteenth note passages and slower moving suspensions. The full subject, or something very close to it, is reintroduced five measures before the end in the alto voice, although it's actually the soprano line that has the last word, sounding the subject one more time to take us to the final three-voice cadence. We'll hear the last part of the invention from the modulation to F-sharp minor through to the end. We're going to look at one more Sinfonia, and it's hard to imagine a more contrasting one. Sinfonia number no. 9 in F minor, 4 4 time, is based on a descending chromatic bass line, a passacaglia, of just over two measures long. Of course, there's a long tradition of constructing compositions around repeating chromatic bass lines in the Baroque era, and we've seen Bach do it before. Here is the bass line as it first appears.
over this bass line, we hear a fragmented melody that, in the first measure, unfolds initially in three note motives, rising a third and then falling back a step, the second motive starting a step higher than the first. In the second measure, the motive reaches higher, but quickly falls back to earth. Here are the first two bars, melody and bass line. It's a functional progression with a clear enough cadence on the tonic of F minor on the downbeat of measure 3. But it does seem to shift gears a little uncomfortably from one beat to the next, and there are certainly some hovering dissonances that are a bit disorienting in the short run. Like the other inventions in Sinfonia, this one makes use of imitation between the voices. An alto voice is added in the third measure, and it takes over the descending chromatic line, up a fifth actually up a fifth and an octave here, while the melodic motives unfold up a fifth as well in the soprano line. Against these two voices, the bass now begins to exploit a much more rhythmically active motive, joining 16th, 32nd, and 8th notes, which seems by itself a little tonally ambiguous until the last three or four notes. Let's hear the first four measures, all parts included, ending with a cadence on C minor. These are the basic elements which we'll hear again and again in various transformations and different keys. But the next two measures actually stand out as a transition that will take us back to F minor. We don't actually hear the descending chromatic pattern starting on C as we might expect, although we do hear a lot of descending chromatic movement, and some earlier motives are referenced, especially those from the bass line which I referred to earlier. This two-measure transition does set up a cadence of sorts back on F minor, and that's where we find ourselves, at the beginning of measure 7, back on somewhat familiar ground with the same motives we've heard before. They are, however, switched around. The original soprano motives are given over to the left-hand bass line, and the chromatically descending bass line has been handed over, in a higher octave obviously, to the soprano. Those later bass motives the ones appearing first in measures 3 and 4, are now taken up by the altos in a higher octave, with the result again being somewhat tonally puzzling. Here's an excerpt beginning with measure 5, the start of the transition I mentioned, up to a clear cadence in the key of A-flat major in measure 13.
although a listener can't help but be conscious of all the descending chromatic motion sprinkled throughout the three parts, you probably noticed that there are occasionally some suggestions of ascending chromatic movement present as well, and it makes an especially powerful effect by its contrast to the general trend. This is something that will be even clearer from the modulation to A-flat to the end of the invention, which my next excerpt will demonstrate. You'll notice as the excerpt continues that there are two more very clear cadences directly ahead, one just a couple of bars later on E-flat major, and then six measures after that on C minor. These give the listener a chance to check in and reorient themselves tonally if they've begun to feel adrift with all of the chromatic motion. There's another very clear cadence, this time on A-flat, that occurs just eight measures before the end. But just five measures before the end, Bach locks us back into the original tonic of F minor, where we have a chance to hear the original motives on the original pitch level to help us with a sense of closure as the movement comes to an end. This invention is a challenge to listen to and make complete sense out of, not because the development of motives lacks consistency or logic, but because it's hard to be completely comfortable with a sense of key for stretches at a time, although Bach is always careful to return us to sound footing on a regular basis. So we've looked at two very different symphonias, and there are obviously many more worthy of attention. But we're going to close for today. In our next episode, we'll look at box motets. <laughs>